Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Father, we pray that Your Word would go forth and encourage Your people and build up Your people, Lord, that um, we would each hear by Your Ruach HaKodesh what we need from You, O God, and uh, that it would be a, a time of blessing and renewal and uh, that uh, you would be glorified. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. So how many of you know someone named uh, Shalom? That there's someone you know that, that that's, that's a name. No? Okay. That, that, that's a real name though, right? And how many of you know someone named Chaim? Chaim? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, so that's a real name, too. Okay, so um, this is a, a discussion I overheard from Rabbi Shalom and Rabbi Chaim. They were talking to each other. So this is a very plausible, you know, thing, because we just established that these are real names, right? Okay, so, uh, so Rabbi Shalom starts off, and he says, I am so popular. People greet me even when I'm not around. They say, Shalom, wherever they go. That's true, said Rabbi Chaim, but people even dedicate their toast to me when I'm not around. They raise their Kiddush cup and they say, Lechaim. They turned to their friend and said, well, you're awfully quiet, Rabbi Nudlik Shlomiel. Oh, okay. I just want you to know, if you, uh, if you like that joke, that I actually made it up. Yeah, I wrote that. And if you didn't like it, uh, Eric wrote it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, <speak laughs> he's got the hook. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna cart me off. All right. But speaking of the famous Rabbi Shalom, I want to ask all of you a question. Do you have shalom? Do you have peace, completeness, and wholeness? What does it take for you to have shalom? What are the right circumstances under which you could say it is well, there is peace? Well, this week's Haftarah portion deals exactly with this question. But first, I want to tell you a story. The story comes from the book Congregational Leadership in Anxious Times, which we read as a leadership um, a while back. And the author is Peter Steinke, who, by the way, was Amy Howard's childhood pastor. We found this out. Uh, she, was, she was over there. She might be in, down at Oneg, but uh, can you hear me, Amy? I'm talking about you. All right. She's, uh, she's right over there. So anyway, this book is really good. It talks about remaining calm in challenging circumstances and how one person who displays this kind of trust and shalom can bless others around them and he calls this the non-anxious presence um, that, that a person can have. So this is a quote from the book uh, is illustrating this point, and this is the story. Quote, The example of Sir Ernest Shackleton epitomizes the concept of the non-anxious presence. 
Shackleton, an early 20th century explorer, led an expedition to complete the first overland crossing of Antarctica. Setting sail on the ship Endurance on December 5, 1914, 28 men took the risk to battle some of nature's harshest conditions. The crew suffered unbearable situations almost the entire 634 days they were gone. They had no communication with the rest of the world. Whether they were dead or alive, no one knew. They endured brutal cold and ice. At times, their hunger touched the borders of starvation. Then, 327 days into the expedition, the endurance, squeezed between huge blocks of ice, was crushed. Frank Worsley, the captain of the ship, noted in his diary, we had lost our home in that universe of ice. We have been cast out into a whole wilderness that might indeed prove to be our tomb. The men saved what they could from the ship to survive. Soon they were confronting not only the forces of a hard environment, but also their own human nature, boredom, paranoia, physical exhaustion, and other manifestations of psychological weariness. According to Worsley, their leader, Sir Shackleton, exhibited a calm, confident, and reassuring presence. Its effect, in his diary, Worsley wrote two citations about Shackleton's presence and its impact on the group. The leader's state of mind is naturally reflected in the whole party and had effects on the attitudes and behaviors of the troops. Sitting on a small piece of ice, buffeted by piercing wind and threatened by chunks of colliding ice, Shackleton himself remembered his feelings. I confess I felt the burden of responsibility sit heavily on my shoulders, but the, on the other hand, I was stimulated and cheered by the attitude of the men, the cross-pollinating effect of the non-anxious presence. Miraculously, all of the members of the expedition survived. The non-anxious leader can broadly affect the entire emotional field. It's as if the leader's calm, reflective demeanor becomes an antibiotic, warding off the toxicity of reactive behavior, unquote. Isn't that a cool story? So where does shalom come from? How does it relate to our experience? This week's Haftarah portion deals with the prophet Elisha. No, I'm not saying Elijah incorrectly. That was Elisha. There's two different guys. Did you know this? Okay, all right. So Elisha was Elijah's what? His student, his protege, right? He studied under him. And uh, the idea of the prophets arose during the period of time in Israel's history after the kingdom of David and Solomon. And it kind of, the whole kingdom went to shambles and even split in two. So the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And the kings over these two different areas, they were almost all lousy. And so the, what happened was, following after the second half of Solomon's life, right? Remember, Solomon kind of went down the, the second half of his life, and all the kings took after that, unfortunately, so what did they do? They followed after other gods. They practiced injustice and hurt the poor. They instituted terrible practices like child sacrifice. They worshiped idols, and they even built some new golden calves because that went so well the first time, right? 
Okay, so then God raised up these prophets like Elijah and Elisha, who stood up to these terrible kings um, and also, you know, helped some of the good kings as well. And uh, they, they also interacted with the innocent people of the land because, remember, the people in the land were affected by the decisions these kings made. So the prophets would come and bring comfort and, and uh, the word of the Lord to them as well. Elisha, in particular, had a real uh, ministry with the people. There's a lot of uh, instances of his interacting. And that's where we meet our remarkable woman in this week's portion, 2 Kings 4, starting in verse 8. And so we read uh, another story about Elisha um, in, in the Haftar portion during the Torah service, but this is, um, we read 1 through 7, so this is the next story. Okay, and perhaps this story will remind us of the narratives in Genesis with Abraham and narratives in the gospel. Perhaps we'll think of other stories that this reminds us of, because that's what the, the, the Torah and the Bible is designed to do. Okay, excuse me. So let's, uh, let's read this. One day, Elisha visited Shunem, and a well-to-do woman living there pressed him to stay and eat a meal. After this, whenever he came through, he stopped there for a meal. She said to her husband, I can see that this is a holy man of God who keeps stopping at our place. Please, let's build him a, a little room on the roof. We'll put a bed and a table in it for him and a stool and a candlestick. Then whenever he comes to visit, he can stay here. One day, Elisha came to visit there and he went into the upper room to lie down. He, call, he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunamit. He called her, and when she arrived, she, he, said to her, he said to him, tell her this. You have shown us so much hospitality. What can I do to show my appreciation? Do you want me to say anything to the king for you or to the commander of the army? She answered, I'm happy living as I do among my own people. He said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, there's one thing, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is old. Elisha said, call her. After he called her, she stood in the doorway. He said, next year, when the season comes around, you will be holding a son. <laughs> no, my lord, she answered. Man of God, don't lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and gave birth to a son the following year, when the season came around, just as Elisha had said to her. So uh, we're going to take a look at some of the Hebrew. Is that okay with you? Do a little Hebrew lesson because I think that's it's helpful sometimes. So in the beginning of the story, we find uh, that the woman is uh, well-to-do, okay? But uh, what is the Hebrew word that describes this woman? It says that she is an ish... Well, can we read that? What does that say? Isha gadola. Very good. Isha gadola. What is, uh, what is the male form of gadola? Gadol. Okay, so what does that word mean? Does anyone know? Great, right? Great, prominent, or, or noble, or big even, right? Who else is described as gadol in the scriptures? The Lord, right? Hashem is described as gadol. God is great, right? We sing that, right? Kigadolata, right? Kigadolata. I don't hear you guys. 
ki gadolata flaot, for you are great, doing wonders, right? Okay, so what, what is the text doing here? I think it's inviting us to notice not just the prophet Elisha, but to notice the character of this remarkable woman. How many of you know a woman of remarkable character in your life, right? I think this, I think this is uh, pointing to that, right? And, and so she is Gedola, all right? Second, we also notice there's a contentedness in her spirit, right? She wants to just serve the prophet and support his ministry and give him a room, right? But she's not expecting anything in return. Did you notice that? She's a giver. Elisha has the ear of the king. Hey, can I get anything for you from, you know, from the royal uh, throne uh, for your kindness? And she simply says in the Hebrew, this is what she says. Betoch ami anochi yeshavet. Yoshavet. Does anyone know what that means? Betoch is among... Ami, my people, Anochi, Yoshavet, I dwell. So this is what she says. I dwell among my people. Can I get anything for you from the king? I dwell among my people. Why, why does she respond this way? Well, I think these Hebrew words parallel the reason for the tabernacle in Exodus 25. Why why does God instruct the Israelites to build the tabernacle? Because he wants to do what? Dwell among his people. That's right. So we see of this woman's character, she reflects in some smaller way the character of the Lord. The Lord, of course, is great, but he humbles himself in order to be with us. That's part of the narrative of Scripture, right? He lowers himself. He desires to dwell with us, among us, because he is the great giver. The generous and humble host is reflected in this Shunammite woman's actions and in her character. We, of course, we are made in God's image to do what? To give, to serve, to bless. Or, you know, we have another option, right? We can take, we can take, we can grab that fruit, we can grasp for more and take from others because, you know, what if we don't have enough, right? The way of the generous giver, it leads to shalom, but the way of the fearful taker, it leads the other way toward disorder and injustice and violence, and we see that in Genesis and in the text and, of course, in our lives. The text is inviting us to examine which way we're going in our daily lives. Am I thinking about my life in terms of taking and getting ahead or in terms of serving and giving of my time, my treasure, and my talent? This is a key part of Shalom. And so here we have the prophet announcing the birth of a son, Right? And then we think of all the other announcements of birth in the scriptures, right? The announcement of the birth of Isaac, the birth of Samson, the birth of John the Immerser, and of course the announcement, the annunciation of the birth of Yeshua the Messiah. They all track 
with this kind of thing here. And so we're keeping, in this, keeping this in mind and also the element, right? Because what happens with Isaac? He's announced, it's announced that he is born and it's a miraculous birth, but then there comes a crisis, right? Where he is nearly sacrificed and God effectively raises him and restores him from the dead. So maybe something like that will happen here. I don't know. Maybe I'm spoiling this. Uh, spoiler alert. Sorry about that. Okay. But if you've read the scriptures, you know that this is the pattern. This is how God works. So let's pick up the story in verse 18. When the child was old enough, he went out one day to be with his father, who was with the reapers. Suddenly he cried out to his father, my head, my head hurts. He said to his servant, carry him back to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he lay on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door on him, and went out. She called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants with a donkey. I must get to the man of God as fast as I can. I'll come straight back. He asks, (laughs) sorry, it's kind of funny to me. Why are you going to him today? It isn't Rosh Chodesh, and it isn't Shabbat. See, the husbands are, you know, sometimes a little behind on the on the, uh, the uh, plan here. And she said, it is all right. Then she saddled the donkey and ordered her servant, drive as fast as you can. Don't slow down for me unless I say so. So her husband says, you know, why bother the man of God, right? It's not the day for worship, okay? And her response translated here is, it's all right. What do you think it is in Hebrew that she says? Just one word, shalom. That's all she says. Let's take a look at that. Shalom. Can we say that? Yeah, that's what that word looks like. So let's continue. She set out and came to the man of God on Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her in the distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, here comes that Shunammit. Run now to meet her and ask her, is everything all right with you, with your husband, with the child? She answered, everything is all right. Yeah. And uh, I have a little bit of the Hebrew here, but you can see all the times that shalom appears in the text, right? And he said to her, Ve'emar la, ha-shalom lach, is there shalom with you? Ha-shalom la-ish shech, is there shalom with your husband? Ha-shalom la-yaled, is there shalom with your son? Vatomer shalom. And she said, it is well, shalom. Okay, so there's a few possibilities here. Why is she saying shalom to her husband before she leaves? And then she finally reaches the prophet on Mount Carmel, and she says shalom. That's the only word she offers, right? What, there's no obvious signs of wellness and completeness and wholeness and peace going on in this story, but this is what she's saying. So it's possible She's in denial, right? No, everything's fine. It's going great. I'm just batting a thousand here. Okay, that's a possibility, right? But that doesn't really match with what we know about this remarkable woman. This is a woman who is gadola, right? She is great, okay? So more likely, I think the text is highlighting her faith, her faith. She is proclaiming shalom in the midst of chaos and death. 
Notice, however, she still takes dramatic steps to pursue the man of God, to plead for redemption. But with her words, she speaks shalom because she knows that God is able. We see this devotion and strength in the final episode of the story. So she finally gets there. And in verse 27, it says this, but when she reached the man of God on the hill, she grabbed his feet. And uh, um, we'll go back one. Okay, very good. Thanks. All right. And here is the word for grabbed. She grasped his feet. Bata chazek. Does that remind you of another word? Chazak. That's right. Chazak. Chazak. Vanit chazek. Chazak. Chazak. Vanit chazek. You guys don't want to sing with me this morning? That's okay. All right. So what is chazak? Be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. So in other words, she's grasping onto, her grasping onto the prophet, his feet, that is a sign of strength, clinging and devotion and proclaiming shalom in the midst of the challenge is a sign of strongness, right? Okay, so now we're at the, the end of the story here. Let's see what happens. Gehazi came up to push her away. That's uh, Elisha's servant. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in great distress, but Adonai has hidden from me what it is. She has, he hasn't told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say not to deceive me? Then Elisha said to Gehazi, get dressed for action. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, don't greet him. If anyone greets you, don't answer and lay my staff on the child's face. The mother of the child said, as Adonai lives and as you live, I will not leave you. He got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the child's face, but there was no sound or sign of life. Then he went back to Elisha and told him the child didn't wake up. So what do we notice here, right? The woman, is she going to go with the staff or is she going to stay with the man of God, right? She's going to stay with him. The staff is just a symbol of Elisha's authority, right? We see that with Moses. He has a staff, right? Eric has a staff. Is that, you know, a symbol of his authority, I guess, right? No, no. He's like, no, no. It's just a, just helps him walk. All right. But that's, that's no good, right? She is clinging to the prophet because she's clinging to life, right? And this, notice what she says here. Let's take a look in the Hebrew. What does that say? Chai Adonai v'chei nashacha. Right? This is her explanation. I'm not going with that staff. I'm going with, I'm staying with you because the Lord lives. He is the God of life. Right? And your soul. In other words, you, uh, that, that life is in you as well. So she's clinging to the God of Israel, because he is the one who lives. And she's clinging to God because she knows that he is the source of life. Make sense? All right. So uh, then we'll keep going. When Elisha reached the house, there the child was, dead and laid on the bed. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to Adonai. Then he got up on the bed and lay on top of the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself out on the child, its flesh began to grow warm. Then he went down, walked around in the house a while, went back up and stretched himself out on the child again. 
the child sneezed seven times, then opened his eyes. Elisha called Gehazi and said, call this Shunamit. So he called her, and when she came into him, he said, pick up your son. She entered, fell at his feet, and prostrated herself on the floor. Then she picked up her son and went out. It's quite dramatic, isn't it? So what did we learn from this? What are the ingredients for shalom? This story seems to be saying that our peace does not have to depend on what's going on in our lives. Isn't that strange? It's a strange idea, right? We would think that we would be affected by these things that are happening, but the text is pointing to something else. This woman has a different view of reality, which is more correct than what she can see with her natural eye. Isn't that remarkable? Do you know anyone like that? Yeah. A heart that is committed to give, to serve, to be humble, that is a heart of shalom. A heart that clings to life and the God of life and the prophet who came that we might have life is a heart of shalom. You know, it's very easy for us to focus on ourselves. After all, you know, we're always around. So it's like, oh, okay, I guess I can look at, you know, myself because I'm here, right? But this text is telling us that there's the God of resurrection life. He breaks into our reality so that we can have a different reality, so that we can have shalom. And not only so that we can have it, but so that we can share that hope with others through service and through humility. Notice the character of this woman. There, this was, a, you know, a prophet, Elisha. He had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And yet, as remarkable as that is, this story I don't think is about him, but it's about the Shunammite woman's trust and shalom and devotion and her heart to give. May God grant all of us a similar heart of shalom through Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Shalom. All right. Well, let's pray. Lord Avinu, we thank you that you can grant us shalom and you can grant us your eyes to see any situation, Lord, that no matter what is happening around us, um, there might be appear to be death and chaos, but you are the God of life, and so we cling to you. And we, we know that in our service and in our humility and in our uh, commitment to being generous givers, Lord, that you will show yourself to be faithful um, because you love to bless us, Lord, and you have given us a different reality, and you told us not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear, but because our Father in heaven, because you love to give us good things, Lord, but you told us to be generous with our uh, with ourselves, Lord, and you have enabled us to have peace um, that is a trusting peace, Lord, that no matter what is going on around us, that you, we can proclaim with our our mouth that there is shalom, that there is completeness and wholeness and peace, and, and we can enter into trust with you that you will bring your kingdom onto earth through our prayers and through our cries to you because of your great love for us.
And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.